We're going to talk today through Genesis 37 through 50. Genesis 37 through 50. Of course, this is going to finish out the book of Genesis for us. That seems like we started it like two years ago, uh, but it was only since last year. But uh, I think total this is about our 10th lesson overall as we're trying to journey our way through the Old Testament and next week, we will give an introduction to Exodus and then take a couple of weeks uh, to talk about the stories and the accounts uh, in the scriptures in the book of Exodus. But certainly Genesis is obviously, um, I mean, you, you can't discount the power of Genesis. You can't discount the importance of Genesis, beginning with the first 11 chapters that we looked at with the creation of the world and all of the ancient stories that we found in first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, setting the stage for what comes in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 1 through 11, we saw the sin problem increase, increase, and increase. Um, and then in Genesis chapter 12, we began to see the story of Abraham and how God is eventually going to bring redemption to the whole world through Abraham and his family. We spent a week journeying through Abraham's life, the the good and the, the bad of Abraham's life, uh, and how God promised him a covenant, uh, that he would bless him, that he would make a great nation out of him, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, um, and that he would give to Abraham's descendants a land. So he promised a, a people and a land. And we trace that promise and that journey through the life of Abraham and how God protected that promise. Uh, and then we saw the uh, birth of Isaac, uh, and then the birth of Jacob and Esau. And last week we talked about Jacob and Esau and how God kind of transformed uh, Jacob's life. And we saw his, his adventures of getting married and eventually having children. And it, the whole narrative here in chapter 12 will end up with Jacob and his 12 sons, which will make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, what we're going to talk about today in Genesis 37 through 50 is one of uh, Jacob's descendants, primarily Joseph. Uh, in Genesis chapter 37, uh, verse number 2, in Genesis 37 to, we find the words, these are the generations of Jacob. And way back in our introduction to Genesis, we said that the major sections in Genesis are divided up by this phrase here. Uh, in Hebrew, we call it the Toledot, but here it's these are the generations of. We have the generations of Adam and the generations of Terah. You know, we went on through these generations. I believe there are 10 of those. And this is the last section that Genesis describes as a story of the descendants or the generation of, of Jacob. And the specific uh, storyline that we look at is, of course, Joseph. I'm sure most of us are familiar with Joseph's life and Joseph's story, uh, which takes up, obviously, the majority of um, Genesis 37 through 50. However, it's just like what we mentioned last week with Jacob, and, and I've preached through the life of Joseph before, and there are many things that you can draw out of the life of Joseph uh, through the individual narrative and stories that it tells. Uh, but again, what we kind of want to do here, we want to you know, talk about some of those, but our main goal is to really trace this overall theme and how does all of Genesis fit together. 
Not just the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife teaching us how to you know, resist temptation you know, or you know, how to be faithful to God through trials like Joseph in prison. You know, those things are good and they're encouragement to us, but I want us to get a grasp in here of how Joseph plays in the overall picture of Genesis and how the overall picture of Genesis is really tracing this covenant of redemption from the sin that we come to find out in the early part of the book of Genesis, this sin that plagues the whole world. So that's really what we're going to trace. So we're going to mention some of the uh, uh, narratives in Joseph's life and some of the stories there, but it's not going to be our primary focus of talking about each narrative. We just really want to kind of get an overview of what all is happening. So while Joseph is the main character here, um, we also see in the larger picture of what Joseph's purpose was. Joseph's purpose was not just to, again, like I said, teach us how to resist temptation. Joseph had a great uh, role to play in the preservation of his family, which has to play in the preservation of the whole nation. To preserve the nation is to preserve the, the, the family in which Jesus Christ would come through. Uh, Genesis 37 through 50 also teach us about the other sons of Jacob, uh, primarily Judah, and what future role Judah is going to play in the family as well. Judah has a significant role because it's through the line of Judah that will be the kingly line that David will come from, that Solomon will come from, that Jesus will eventually come from. So, you know, all of these stories, they're all interwoven. Uh, and they're all part of this larger narrative and story. So as we approach this section here in Genesis 37, these are the generations of Jacob. And we're immediately introduced in chapter 37 to Joseph being 17 years old. Y'all remember what it was like to be a 17-year-old? Wasn't that fun back then? Joseph is a 17-year-old, and he is living the high life. I mean, he's just enjoying life. And he's enjoying life for one reason, is that he is the favorite son of Jacob. And he's favored above all of his brothers. Uh, and we, of course, are familiar with Joseph and the coat of many colors. He wore this colorful coat to stick out. And he kind of flaunted his favoritism in front of his brothers. Well, as we've seen in this story, uh, this family is a very dysfunctional family. Um, even in the womb, they are a very dysfunctional family. And we'll even continue to see that as the story progresses here. Uh, but there's these sibling rivalries that we've seen. There's these rivalries between, you know, Jacob's, you know, wives Leah and Rachel. There's that rivalry there of, you know, one can have children, one cannot have children. And we just see these things play out. Uh, of course, even go back to Isaac and Rebekah, you know, Jacob and Esau, they were the favored sons of each of their parents, and that caused the conflict there. So we begin this story kind of like what, how we've began other stories in Genesis with a family conflict. Like here, a family conflict among Joseph and his brothers. Um, the account of Joseph is unique in the patriarchal narratives, uh, first of all, because it's a long narrative. Um, not just short narratives, but it's a longer narrative. And Joseph technically isn't usually listed among the patriarchs. The patriarch is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Joseph technically is not listed among the patriarchs. Um, 
However, his story takes up a very large portion of the patriarchal narratives here in Genesis. Um, Also, it's also a Judah story, as we mentioned. Even though Judah in length of stories is a minor figure, Judah would go on to play a major role, as we've already mentioned. He will play a major role in the nation of Israel. Judah is also an interesting character in the Bible because just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah has flaws. Um, In fact, the next chapter in chapter 38 uh, is a very disturbing chapter. Uh, Lisa and I were reading through that last night, um, and Genesis 38 is one of those chapters that's like, this is disturbing over some things that are happening there. So, and it has to do with Judah's character. Uh, but just like some of the other stories we've seen, mostly with Jacob, because Jacob was a trickster and a deceiver and a manipulator, and, but yet God changed him. Uh, Judah kind of follows the same tra- trajectory. Judah is a, um, a very immoral character, as we see in uh, even he's, I mean, he's one of, the, one of the brothers that wants to kill his brother uh, and cover that up. Uh, and then he does some horrific things in chapter 38 of Genesis. But yet, as the story progresses toward the end, you see a, a change in Judah's life. And Judah actually becomes blessed above all of his other brothers and would stand out as being the ultimate ruler uh, among his brothers as well. So uh, the Joseph narrative is included in Genesis for three basic reasons. First of all, even though Joseph is not named as one of the first patriarchs, um, the story demonstrates powerfully how the promise survives in spite of significant obstacles. And in the significant obstacle here, it is a famine in the land. And what do we find when there's a famine in the land of Canaan? we find that they go down to Egypt. Uh, And we have seen that several times before. Uh, So a famine in the land and a driving force to Egypt uh, has played at least three or four major different roles throughout Genesis. Uh, But in spite of even the famine in the land and going down to Egypt, God's promise still stands sure. Secondly, the Joseph narrative explains how God's people got to Egypt to begin with. Because in Exodus, uh, we're going to find the nation as slave people in Egypt. And God's going to deliver them out of Egypt. Well, this account of Joseph tells us how they got down to Egypt. And then thirdly, Joseph will play a vital role in the survival of his people. Because of divine providence, uh, Joseph is going to be in a position to actually save his family from starvation and save them from extinction by providing for them a place to live in Egypt where they will be provided for. So Joseph plays a vital role in the survival of his people. So the story here, even Joseph's story, is really about what happens to the line of Jacob. What happens to Jacob's sons uh, ultimately, the nation of Israel. So that's a little bit of our beginning here as we talk about what's happening here. In Genesis 37 and the rest of Genesis 37, again, we're probably familiar with these scriptures. We're not going to look into a lot of the actual scripture today. Um, 
But Joseph and his family move uh, to Hebron, uh, where Abraham and uh, Sarah and Isaac uh, is bearing Rebekah. They are all buried at Hebron, which, side note, interestingly enough, uh, the Jews uh, hold that Hebron, not far from where Abraham and Isaac are buried, is actually where they believe the entrance to the Garden of Eden was and where uh, Adam and Eve would have been buried. And if you go on, I spent some time yesterday uh, going on Google Maps, and they actually have the, the tomb of the patriarchs, uh, King Herod, uh, way back 2,000 years ago, built a large structure in Hebron over the cave where supposedly Abraham bought, and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah are buried. So Herod, 2,000 years ago, built a massive building there uh, to be the tomb or the, the place of burial for the patriarchs, and it still stands today, 2,000 years later, as the tomb of the patriarchs. And uh, I guess you could go over there and look in the tomb of the patriarchs and uh, see the markers that they have up for Abraham and Sarah. So that's, that's a little neat. So if you have some time and you want to go on Google Earth and Google that, that will be an interesting place to visit. That's cool about Google. You can visit anywhere in the world. Uh, you can walk down the streets uh, without even leaving home. But anyway, uh, so I forgot why I got off on that uh, little tangent there. But anyway, uh, yeah, they moved the Hebron. That's what it was. They moved the Hebron and um, they settle there. Uh, again, Joseph ends up being the favored son of Jacob. And this makes his brothers extremely jealous. And what, uh, what further initiates their jealousy and anger is that Joseph is a dreamer. Joseph has dreams uh, from God you know, that he interprets and he tells to his brothers. You know, and in the first dream, he has a dream that he sees his uh, brothers as chiefs in the field bowing down uh, to Joseph. And this makes his brothers angry, for they're saying, Joseph, are you saying that we will ultimately bow down to you uh, and that we will be your servants? And then we have another dream that Joseph dreams another dream. And this one, he sees the sun, the moon, and the stars, uh, 12 stars bowing, or the stars bowing down to Joseph as well. Uh, and this would indicate that you would see his father and mother, the sun and the moon and the stars, his brothers, would bow down before Joseph. And this makes uh, Joseph's brothers extremely mad, so much so that they want to kill him. So one day while uh, they are out working, Joseph finds them, tells them the dream. They get angry and they throw him in a pit. They throw him in a pit. Uh, and the brothers want to murder him but ultimately decide that they will not murder him, but they will actually sell him and get rid of him and sell him into slavery. Uh, so they dip uh, Joseph's robe in blood, bring it back to Jacob, their father, as evidence of Joseph's death. Of course, this devastates Joseph, and this cruel deception can also echo Jacob's own deception of his father Isaac. Um, when he was old and, and blind. So there's a lot of deception going around through the family here. So the brothers want to kill Joseph. They don't kill him. He's sold into slavery, and he's taken down into Egypt. Uh, if you just want to notice on the back of the paper, if you've already seen it, here's the, we have another little map. I like maps. This is the journeying of Joseph 
Um, so you see in, over there in uh, num- the box number one, uh, in Hebron, uh, Jacob settles in Hebron, and then he sends Joseph up to around Dothan to see where his brothers are. Um, Joseph finds his brothers in Dothan, and then he is taken by Ishmaelite merchants all the way down into Egypt. And that's where the majority of our story of Joseph's life take place down in Egypt. So we begin with more family drama, and we begin with deception. Um, as we come to um, the end of chapter 37, we find that Joseph is sold in Egypt to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Uh, and that's where we kind of take a pause in the Joseph story. And then we have chapter 38. And chapter 38, again, is really seems out of place uh, when you're reading this story. Because we have this nice story of Joseph, and then it just like abruptly stops. And we have this scene of Judah, which is another brother of Joseph. And this is not a pleasant, this is a rather disturbing story. Um, Judah actually goes down um, on a trip and marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons with her. You know, I guess he just leaves his brothers and gets has to go on a trip, meets a Canaanite woman, gets married, and ends up having three sons with the Canaanite woman, Shua. Um, then I guess they grew up and get of age to whatever age they married them off there and finds a wife for the oldest son. Well, the oldest son, he's um, a wicked man, so uh, God kills him uh, here. And then the second son uh, is told to take his sister-in-law, now that her husband is dead, to take his sister-in-law and to have children to carry on the eldest son's lineage. Um, But the second son of Judah uh, says, well, these children won't be my children. They will be credited to my older brother who's dead. So he engages in relations with his sister-in-law, but does not have a child with her, which uh, makes Judah very angry, and God kills him as well. And then, um, so yeah, you can see just how weird this story is. Um, And then when the youngest son gets of age, Judah decides he's not going to marry off uh, or give give the sister-in-law to the youngest son. Um, So the sister-in-law dresses up as a prostitute and Jacob or Joseph, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Judah takes advantage. Um, I mean, not takes advantage. He just sins and, and takes his prostitute and goes have relations with her, which is actually his daughter-in-law. And but he doesn't know that at the time. Um, she ends up having uh, getting pregnant with twins. Well, finds out that Judah is told that his daughter-in-law is having twins uh, from an illegitimate relationship, so he wants her burned to death. And uh, then she exposes that it was actually Judah was the one that uh, slept with her, and he's the father of the children. 
So he realizes his sin and spares her life by declaring that she is actually more righteous than he is. Um, and yeah, that's, that, 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 that's a weird interlude here in chapter 38. Um, and it seems out of place. I mean, it's obviously very disturbing. Um, but there's a little bit, uh, you know, why is it actually there? Why did the writer, you know, include this story in chapter 38 there? Um, probably a couple of reasons. Probably number one, um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, uh, we are told that Joseph and not Judah uh, received a special birthright. So Joseph uh, received a birthright over Judah, uh, which is probably because of this. Um, then we also, another reason that this could be in here is, again, like I said, Judah will play a major role later on, which interestingly enough, even though Joseph has the dream that his brothers would bow down to him, and they eventually do, Judah's the one who all of the brothers and all of the world will actually bow down to in Jesus. So that's interesting there. But Judah fails miserably in this chapter, and his moral weakness stands in sharp contrast to Joseph's inability to resist, uh, or Joseph's ability to resist temptation. Uh, here we see Joseph resisting temptation in Potiphar's house. Judah does not resist temptation. He makes bad choices. Um, and we see the contrast of moral character there. So again, these biblical characters are not the standard of moral superiority that sometimes we paint them in Sunday school. Uh, they are people of very questionable moral character. Um, and it goes that way with every one of them. Uh, however, but as we said, Judah, there does indicate an eventual change in him. Obviously, as he grows and matures, there's a change in him. And he does you know, play a significant role in, you know, when they meet Joseph, helping to secure the safety of, of the family there. So uh, just like life, th these are people just like us, just like we could go back in our past and pick some really bad decisions that, that we made. You know, these people did the same thing. And, and God used them. Um, because ultimately it wasn't about them. Ultimately it was about the plan that God had for them that would ultimately point to Jesus and bring people to Him. So uh, if you are a person with uh, some flaws and uh, some past mistakes and things like that, uh, we are all in good company uh, when we look at these uh, biblical characters here. So yeah, chapter 38 is an interesting uh, chapter. Uh, go back and read it if if you want some light, uh, interesting reading, if you like a good soap opera and a, and a murder tale, and uh, yeah, that, that's some good stuff there. And then chapter 39, we jump right back into uh, Joseph's story. And we pick up Joseph. He is in Egypt, and he is in Potiphar's house. So there are two major accounts or two major scenes that we want to look at stemming from or going through Genesis 39 through Genesis 41. Uh, the first scene is in Potiphar's house. Again, Potiphar was a captain of the guard of the officer for Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph um, finds favor with Potiphar. Uh, and Potiphar puts him in charge over his whole household and running uh, his household. So Joseph is, even though he's been sold as a slave, he has favor with Pharaoh. God gives him favor with Pharaoh, or favor with Potiphar, and, and he'll have favor with Pharaoh as well. 
uh, but he has favor, which causes advancement and causes people to look upon him favorably. And he's blessed, uh, and he's a man, again, of good character um, and a hard worker. And he's Joseph's probably one of the best examples that we have uh, in Scripture, out of all these biblical characters. Uh, he's not listed, again, in traditional order with the patriarchs, but he certainly displays a lot better character uh, than the other patriarchs do from time to time. But in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife, obviously Joseph was a very handsome and attractive uh, man as well. Um, that could have been another reason why his brothers hated him. Maybe he was the, maybe he was the you know, glamour boy of all of them. And uh, so obviously he is attractive to Potiphar's wife. Uh, for Potiphar's wife desires Joseph, and she makes advances on Joseph. But Joseph is a man of good moral character, and he resists temptation and uh, flees from Potiphar's wife's presence and flees from the house. He rejects her advances. Um, however, even though he rejected, she still accused him of forcing himself on her. And she tells her husband, and ultimately Joseph, the good guy, is thrown into prison. But don't feel bad for Joseph because he's advancing to where God has for him to be, even in uh, different, difficult and unfair circumstances. So he's accused of forcing himself upon Potiphar's wife, which he did not do, uh, and then he's thrown into prison. In prison, Joseph meets two jailed Egyptian officials. Uh, and one day correctly interprets their dreams. So just as we saw Joseph himself was a dreamer uh, and interpreted dreams to share with his brothers, uh, now he interprets more dreams. Uh, in keeping with Joseph's interpretation, the chief cupbearer was restored to his former post as an Egyptian official. Uh, and Joseph tells him to remember him, and he forgets him temporarily. He forgot all about the clever young man in prison, after two years, Joseph sat two years in prison. The Egyptian king himself had a troubling dream. The cupbearer remembered Joseph and remember how he interpreted his dream. And he rushed from his cell to Pharaoh's uh, throne room. He rushed from his cell to Pharaoh's throne room. After hearing Pharaoh's dream, Joseph explains its significance. So Pharaoh has a disturbing dream. They remember Joseph is an interpreter of dreams, so they bring Joseph to Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream. None of the other you know, spiritual people uh, around Pharaoh, the pagan spiritual people, none of them could interpret the dream. Uh, but here we see Joseph can. Egypt, and here's the significance of the dream, Egypt would enjoy seven years of plenty and abundance. But these were followed by seven years of famine. To prepare for the lean years ahead, the king puts Joseph in charge of storing up and distributing food. He was now a high official himself, second only to Pharaoh. So Joseph interprets this dream of a famine that is coming. So to prepare for the famine, we need to store up food for distributing the food so that our people will not starve. Um, and so he was put in charge of that. And again, he was made second in all of Egypt only to Pharaoh. So he is taken to a prominent position. Again, what's happening is that God has put him in the perfect place to preserve his family and to save his family. 
So all of this isn't just happening because Joseph was a great guy. In fact, it happened in spite of Joseph being a great guy. You know, Joseph was a great guy and he got accused for something he didn't do and thrown into prison. But yet all of this is the plan of God being worked out. So he goes from being sold, being thrown in a pit, transported down into Egypt, sold as a slave to Potiphar, becomes the head of Potiphar's household, accused of something he didn't do, put into prison, uh, showed off his ability to interpret dreams, but yet stayed in prison for two years. When Pharaoh needed a dream interpreted, they remembered Joseph. Joseph comes to interpret the dream, and now he finds himself as a high official in Egypt. And then when we come to chapters 42 through 47, 42 through 47, uh, while Joseph is promoted from slave to Pharaoh's right-hand man in charge of preparing for the famine, Jacob, now we're going to go back to Joseph's, or Jacob's, uh, Joseph's brothers, that should be Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt. It's my first major mistake on this paper. It's pretty good. While Joseph is promoted, uh, Jacob and his growing family are still back in the land of Canaan. The famine hits and Jacob starts to feel the pinch. The famine hits and Jacob and his family start to feel the pinch. So he sends his remaining sons, except for Benjamin, because Benjamin was his youngest and the only uh, other son of his favorite wife, Rachel, so he didn't want anything to happen to Benjamin. But he sends the other sons to Egypt to see if they can buy grain from Pharaoh. Again, have we seen this go to Egypt because of a famine idea before? I think we have. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. I was giving over details, but it's okay. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, they must meet with Joseph. The brother they wanted to kill because they hated him so bad, but they ended up throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery. And now they have to meet before Joseph in order to get food to survive. So Joseph is in charge of rationing the food. He recognizes his brothers immediately, but they do not recognize him. Instead, they bow down to him, fulfilling the dream that he had when he was younger, and the story could have come to a quick ending here, uh, but there's a whole lot more to the story. And here's the point. Payback is not the point. Joseph, if he was spiteful and vengeful, had every opportunity um, to get payback on his brothers. He could have killed them all right then. He could have thrown them in prison forever. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But payback here is not the point. That's not who Joseph is. But the brothers are in a completely vulnerable position. But instead of revealing who he is, Joseph plays a little trick on them. He accuses them of spying, but yet strikes a deal. Show me you are honest men by bringing back the youngest brother of yours. Bring back the youngest brother, Joseph says. They are less than excited about the deal since they know Jacob will not like this. Jacob will not want Benjamin to go Egypt. But they really don't have a choice in the matter. If they want to live, if they want to survive, they don't have a choice. So they leave another brother, Simeon, as collateral. He's bound in chains and the remaining brothers make their way back to Canaan to deliver the message to Jacob, we need Benjamin. We need him back. Uh, Jacob is reluctant to release Benjamin to his son's care, but with food running out, he has no choice. The brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin. 
Joseph greeted them warmly, but conspired to hide. He's just really playing games with them right now. Must have felt a little bit good. It's not vengeance, but it's having a little fun with them. But it's all for a purpose. He greeted them warmly, but conspired to hide a precious goblet in Benjamin's grain sack before they left. On the way back to Canaan, the brothers were apprehended. The goblet was found in Benjamin's sack. He was charged with theft. Judah, fearing that the news would kill their father, offered to go to prison in Benjamin's stead. There we see Judah again. Now here we have a change. You know, he wanted to kind of, he wanted to kill his brother. And then he did this horrible stuff in Genesis chapter 38. But now he's willing to sacrifice himself in Benjamin's place. I think there could be a tiny bit of picturing in that when he would offer to go in the place of Benjamin to save his life. Jesus did that. He took our place for us, took our punishment in our stead so that we wouldn't have to bear the judgment and punishment that was coming to us. But at that point, Joseph could no longer restrain himself. And he burst into tears and he reveals himself. And he says, I am Joseph, the one who you sold as a slave. And he reveals himself as their brother. And they are scared to death. But Joseph makes peace with his brothers. He makes peace. And he sent for his father to join them in Egypt. As a high official, Joseph was able to arrange for his father and brothers to settle in the rich area of Goshen. You can find Goshen on uh, the map. There Jacob lived in comfort and eventually died. His descendants stayed in the land of Goshen where they grew into a mighty people. So Joseph saves his family. Throughout all of his roller coaster ride ups and downs, he's put in the proper place at the proper time to provide for his brothers and his father and his family to keep the promise going. That this family has to multiply and increase. However, now they seem way farther away from the promised land, though, because they're no longer in Canaan. They're not at Hebron. They're not in the promised land. Now they're in Egypt. So even though they're growing and they're multiplying and their, their lives have been spared, they seem farther away from the promised land now than they did before. Uh, When we come to chapters 48 through 50, um, the whole book of Genesis concludes with the deaths of Jacob and Joseph. Before his death, Jacob, as a father, as a patriarch, brings all of his sons and grandsons before him to pronounce blessing upon them. And in saying blessing, that, that doesn't always mean he's going to pronounce great things upon everyone. What he's really doing is really prophesying their future and prophesying what's going to happen uh, generations to come through them. So he brings his, uh, first of all, he brings his uh, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, essentially adopting them as one of his own. Uh, he insists, though, that the blessing on Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh, the elder, So Jacob blesses the younger over the older. We've seen that before. Um, This scene is more than an extended goodbye. It is a glimpse of Israel's future for Ephraim. 
will be one of the names of the powerful northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom would be Judah after the monarchy is divided. So there's you know, a little bit of future foreshadowing and significance in blessing Ephraim uh, first over Manasseh the elder. And then Jacob goes uh, in chapter 49 through this uh, blessing to all of his sons. The order is this. He first blesses Leah's sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar. Uh, and then uh, Bilhah, which was Rachel's handmaid. She blesses Dan. And then in the midst of that, he blesses Gad and Asher, which is Zilpha's, Leah's handmaid sons. And then goes back to Bilhah's other son, Naphtali. And then finally, Ray pronounces a blessing or prophecy over Rachel's sons, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, just a little bit of uh, insight into, we're not going to go through all of the, the 12 sons, but Reuben uh, is actually the firstborn uh, and is entitled to, a again, the double portion, the special birthright. Um, but Reuben sinned with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid and Jacob's concubine. Uh, Jacob awards his birthright's double portion to Joseph. Then there's a comment on Simeon and Levi, uh, which again is no blessing at all. They are condemned as men of violence, presumably because of the attack on Shechem, uh, and they are doomed to be scattered in Israel. Uh, Issachar is overly enamored with the fertility of the promised land. His fate is to be assimilated um, by the Canaanites and forced into servitude. Uh, so again, this when it says blessing, it's not just, you know, the real, I mean, the, the, it's really what's going to happen to you in the future. It's a prophecy about what's going to happen to you in the future. Uh, Joseph's blessings are extensive, uh, as we might expect, because of, of his character and because he's second in charge of uh, Egypt. So yeah, you're, you're going to, you know, give him some, some extra uh, inheritance there. Uh, They include the fact that he will be a prince among his brothers. But then we come to Judah, and Judah is blessed over all his brothers. Judah will be the name of the southern kingdom. Judah receives an especially exalted place in Jacob's blessing. For all Israel's hopes will be pinned on a king that would come from Judah. This king's name would be David. The blessings given to Ephraim and Judah in Genesis signal the political prominence of these tribes in Israel's future. And ultimately, the king that would come from Judah would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. So uh, even though, again, the main storyline follows Joseph's life, it follows Joseph's life because of what would happen to the 12 tribes. And ultimately, what would happen to Judah? Because it's through Judah, again, that all the hopes of Israel and the world would be dependent upon Judah. That he would be the kingly lineage with which David, Solomon, and Jesus would come. So, in conclusion, the purpose of the Joseph story is summed up in Genesis 45, 5-7. Which says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, 
and to keep you alive for many survivors. That's the point of the whole story. That's it. That's what it comes down to. They hated him. They put him in a pit. They wanted to get rid of him. But God was, in essence and literally, sending him before his brothers to provide for his brothers. And, you know, I wish we could. I wish we had time to go into the parallels of Jesus and the gospel and all of this because it's all over. We really don't have time to do all of that. But ultimately, it leads to the famous line. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Um, so what do we learn from the Joseph story? Well, first of all, we learn the theme of divine providence, that God's hand is all over this story. And even when people were doing things to Joseph because they hated him, when they unfairly and unjustly accused him of things he didn't do, when he was forgotten about, when he was forgotten about in prison, God was still with him. And God's hand was on that whole story to take Joseph exactly where he needed to be. Exactly where he needed to be. Uh, so we see God's hands at every point in the story. Then we see God's favor upon Joseph. Joseph being, again, a man of character. But God's hand was on him. And even in the midst of a foreign land, even as someone who was sold as a slave, God gave him favor with so many people. He gave him favor with Potiphar. And for Potiphar, you know, made him, you know, ruling over his, his whole household for Potiphar. You know, he, he eventually gave him favor with the, the cupbearer who remembered him in prison because he interpreted his dream and he remembered Joseph favorably. He gave him favor with Pharaoh after he interpreted the dream so that Pharaoh advanced him. So you see God's favor upon somebody in his plan. Um, and you can look back. I think we all can do this. We can all look back and see where God's hand, you know, was in every decision. I look back at people that I've met, you know, haphazardly, you know, that, that opened this door for me, or I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for this person. And, you know, when you start seeing the coincidences of how things line up and how many things happen in other people's lives to get them to this point, and things happen to your life to get you in this point, but yet somehow with all those things happening in their lives get you to this point, it gets you to, to this point for God to use you. It's mind-blowing, and it's amazing. I mean, I've never been a, a staunch Calvinist of, you know, God predestines everything that happens, but doggone it if I don't look back and say, this couldn't have been all coincidence. Couldn't have been all coincidence. And that just shows me just the, the, the sovereign hand of God and, and you know, how much He does play and, and you know, not causing everything, but somehow weaving everything together to bring us to the place where things just kind of work out. Even the bad times, even the, the difficult times, God just has a way of truly working all things together for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So the Joseph story has always spoke to me because I can look back over my life and see how I got to certain places, doors that opened, doors that closed, people I met, people that left my life. I mean, just, it's just crazy how 
things work out. And at the end of the day, God knows what he's doing. And that's the bottom line. But anyway, we see God's favor upon Joseph. And then we see the character of Joseph. I mean, obviously, Joseph is you know, a man of exemplary uh, character. Uh, he's a model of a wise sage in uh, uh, Jewish culture uh, because of his godly virtue of patience and wisdom. Um, you know, personally, he's uh, considered a life and a character worthy of emulation. So that's going to take us to the end of Genesis. And as we come to the end of um, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph dies. He's 110 years old. Uh, they embalm him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Thus we have God's people, the 12 sons of Jacob, having children and raising families, and they're living in Egypt. Now as we go into Exodus, we're going to find out they stayed in Egypt for a long time. And things began to go very sour as the years went on in Egypt. So we will pick up our story in Exodus next week.